1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
3: Welcome
4: to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And it is hashtag pinups week here on Stuff Mom Never Told You. In our last episode, we talked about the safer for work pinups, particularly during the World War II era. And today, we are shining the spotlight on the most famous pinup of all, Ms. Betty Page.
0: Yeah, the most famous pinup and also the most famous
4: set of bangs. Oh my god, the bangs. (laughs) Such good bangs! Such good bangs! I don't think I, I have the the face or hair type to pull off those bangs, but
0: whew. yeah, the height of my forehead requires that I have longer bangs, and I'm okay with that. I I but I I love that Betty Page rocked those bangs, and that it has still created, it's been creating just cultural. Uh, physical shockwave since then. Of, oh yeah. Pop stars mimicking how she looks.
4: Katy Perry has, uh, well, sometimes has Betty Page hair. Yeah. And, uh, listeners, I gotta tell you, if you aren't aware, Caroline has, uh, long bangs and she rocks them. Oh, thank you. The Caroline bang, you know, might, might be a thing too. I, ooh. You never know. Um, I wanted to share a quick reminiscence though with Betty Page. I first learned about her from one of my very best friends who is a fantastic musician named Madeline. And she wrote a song when we were in high school all about Betty Page. And it was like this biographical um, ditty, (laughs) which is a horrible way to describe a song, all about um, Betty Page. And I remember hearing it and asking her, like, "Who who is this person you're talking about? And she was like, you don't know who Betty Page is? Ugh. Kristen, and she taught me so many things, side note. Um, and one of, one of the things she taught me that was really, I mean, I don't want to say it was transformative, but I remember seeing her image for the first time and it's, it was very arresting. Yeah. Partially because of the bangs, but also because of the contrast between the sheer look of delight on her face and the leopard print bikini that she was wearing in those six inch fetish stilettos.
0: Well, this is also like, okay. so you and I are growing up at a time when like Kate Moss is modeling for um, Calvin Klein and nothing against Kate Moss. She's a very beautiful woman. But like when you look at how so many 90s and 2000s and even today ads, people in ads are always just looking so dour and so shiny for some reason and, and hungry and possibly angry to look. At someone like Betty Page, who is rocking some really sexy uh, get-ups, some of which would even be considered sort of uh, taboo today. Um, and to be doing it with a smile, it is is—it is revolutionary. And she wasn't nine feet tall. She was 5'5", five five, and her weight kind of fluctuated somewhere around 150. I mean, she was a beautiful woman, but it's just so fascinating to watch the effect that her reemergence of popularity since kind of the 80s and 90s has had on people our age and and even older.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a portrayal of sexuality that I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Betty Page, the person, is fascinating as well. I mean, and especially now when we put her in the context of this kind of post-career fame that she's had. She's, she's far more famous and monetarily successful. Today than she was at the sort of apex of the career when she was working. Yeah, big time.
0: Margaret Talbot, writing in The New Republic, calls Betty America's underground pinup queen because it's not like she was super well-known and super famous and mainstream while she was actually modeling. It wasn't until much later because her pictures used to literally be kept under wraps in brown paper, in magazines and calendars, uh, ma- magazines called Peak stare, gaze, eyeful. You want to talk about the male gaze, Kristen? Just look at the title of these girly gaze, eyes. Gaze, yeah. <laughs> um, but now, I mean, she, like so many other uh, nameless pinups from that era, she is all over postcards, calendars, fan websites. People all over the world have Betty Page lookalike competitions. And so those bangs have translated from something that was very underground to now a cultural movement. And part of that sort of building up of Betty Page lore has to do with the most recent Betty Page movie in 2012, Betty Page Reveals All, um, which t- actually talked to Betty Page. She was the narrator and she revealed a lot about her life.
4: It was way beyond what we just see in images. Well, and speaking of images, for that documentary, she wouldn't allow herself to be on camera. All you hear is her very distinct voice. She said, quote, I want to be remembered as I was when I was young and in my golden times. I want to be remembered as a woman who changed people's perspectives concerning nudity in its natural form. And in pretty much all of the, you know, the the later her later life interviews that she gives at some point, she's echoes that same sentiment of no I don't want to be photographed you're never going to see a photo of me again Um, and always talks about how weight conscious she is she says oh well I'm just old and fat now and you know she at one point she talked about how uh, she has all gray hair and she would hate for people to think of her in that way
0: yeah and so it's she's handing you A handful of good and a handful of bad with that quote, I feel like, because, oh, good, yeah, you you understand the role that you played in revolutionizing people's ideas about sex and body image and nudity, and that's wonderful. Oh, but you don't actually want to be shown because you're
4: ashamed of... How you look. Being an older woman. Hmm. Well, and one thing that is revealed in Betty Page Reveals All, even though, you know, some critics panned it as a bit of a puff piece, there is one point when she goes to see a screening of Gretchen Moll starring as her in the 2005 fictional movie, The Notorious Betty Page, and or I guess it would be more of like a biopic, and she hates it. Like, at one point, she leaves the screen, screening, screaming that it's all lies. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because she has, Betty Page, just like, uh, the other pinups that we discussed in the first episode, uh, is a bundle of contradictions. And so, while, yes, she posed nude and nearly nude and almost nude, uh, for, for several years, she had very strong convictions about certain things. In life, and so while she was very pro nudity, that doesn't necessarily mean she was like super pro have sex with whoever you want or drink and all of that stuff. Um, she was a very multifaceted character, really, just like any human. And and as people who now in 2015 have kind of co opted her, we've sort of cherry picked her out of history. We have sort of willfully ignored the context both of the time in which she lived and also the context of the life that she lived as a little girl.
4: Yeah, so in 1923... She was born in Nashville, Betty May Page. She was the oldest girl to a Baptist family of five other children, and it was not an easy childhood. And I feel like a lot of this is kind of generally known about her background. At one point in that documentary, Betty Page Reveals All, she describes her father as a, quote, sex fiend who molested her and her two sisters. But after her parents divorced in 1933, her mother wasn't exactly a source of comfort for her either.
0: Yeah. Betty talks about how her mother did not want girls. She did not want daughters. She thought we were trouble, Betty said, um, to the point where her mother didn't even talk to her girls, which I feel like is not terribly uncommon, but her mother didn't even talk to the girls about getting their period, and so at 13 she thought she was dying because her mother had never talked to her about it. And then, uh, so the, her parents have been divorced, uh, her dad gets arrested in Atlanta for stealing a cop car, and so mom ends up placing the girls, not the boys, in an orphanage where Betty ends up I guess trying to make the best of the situation and perform songs and skits for the other girls at the orphanage.
4: And despite or perhaps driven by these early traumas, she excelled in high school. Uh, she was in the drama club. She was a member of the debate team. She was editor of the newspaper. She kind of sounds like like a little Tracy Flick <laughs> running around. Um, she was also voted most likely to succeed. And one thing that broke her heart was that she wanted to be valedictorian. But by like one point or just a very, very small margin, she ended up being salutatorian. So she gets a scholarship to this place called Peabody College, which she went to, but she wasn't exactly pleased to do it. Um, and she graduated with a B.A. in education. And in 1943, after a short stint as a teacher, which she did not like because mm-hmm. she said that the male students would essentially bully and harass her constantly. She married her first husband at 19 and moves to San Francisco. And, yeah, she wasn't just
0: sitting around out there in the house doing nothing. While her husband got shipped off to the Pacific during World War II... Betty nabs her first modeling job for a local furrier, so she's getting her pictures taken in the fur coats. Uh, she wins second place also in a sailor-judged beauty contest, and the prize was a $50 war bond. So, like,
4: we see, hey, I can kind of make some money off of my image here. And in 1945 she goes to Hollywood and she lands a screen test at 20th Century Fox. And she kind of claims later on that she was snubbed because she rejected a studio executive's sexual advances it's also worth keeping in mind too though that little Nashville born Betty Page also had a a very strong southern accent that she did take voice lessons to try to get rid of but you can even hear it in those later life interviews that she still has like a very particular kind of Lilt. Yeah, well so after
0: divorcing her first husband she moves to New York City and she has her sights set on acting because she got a taste of it in Hollywood and so she in New York starts taking acting classes, she's auditioning for parts and she even landed a few minor roles on early live TV but nothing stuck. Similar thing uh, the accent, maybe she hadn't honed those acting skills quite enough but so in 1949 she's on a trip to Coney Island at the beach, and she meets off-duty police officer Jerry Tibbs, who approaches her about modeling, tells her, girl, you need to get those bangs, And introduces her to camera clubs, which, in general, those are groups of amateur photographers who get together and kind of go out on shooting expeditions. In this case, specifically, these camera clubs were men's hobbyist groups that sometimes acted as a front for erotic photography. And as I was reading about this, it occurred to me more and more like, Betty, what is wrong with you? Just some strange man walks up to you on the beach and, like, asks you to get into modeling? That is how you get yourself kidnapped, but, I mean, that's also what my mother always told me. But think about that
4: smile. I, I mean, know. Betty, Betty's at least in the way that she looks on film, she seems so receptive to whatever life tosses her way. Um, and she gets into this more erotic photography, and she's thinking, you know what? Why not? It's paying the bills. She's good at it. And these are the early signs that displaying her sexuality before the camera and also a little bit of nudity or just full-on nudity really didn't bother her. And at one point, She and three other models were arrested for indecent exposure during a topless photo shoot near a highway. But when she goes before the judge, she pleads not guilty, insisting that there was nothing indecent about her body and that the group was a legitimate camera club. And the judge ends up bumping the charge down to just disorderly conduct. Yeah. And one of the sources we were looking at
0: points points to sort of the radical nature of someone of this time uh, claiming that their body is not indecent. It's OK for me to be naked near a highway,
4: Mr. Well, Judge. Well, and that's one thing that she talks a lot about is how much she loves being naked outside. Taking a sun bath. Yeah, or an air bath. An air bath, that's what she calls it, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man.
0: Yeah, Betty's having a good time. You know, um, the the whole thing is like, yeah, she wants to be an actress, and... These nude photos are, are really no big deal. It's like if, you know, hey, just go get a job at Starbucks if you can't get your dream job and, and make money until then.
4: Her her deal was, well, I'll just go take my clothes off and, and pose for some pictures. So will be, you know, like, you know, working at Starbucks, but nothing is on underneath <laughs> your barista apron, perhaps. <laughs> but as her camera club photos get more and more popular, she catches the attention of Irving and Paula Claw. And these are Brother and sisters who are pin-up and bondage photo entrepreneurs. So he's usually the producer. She's usually the director. I've always found it very strange and fascinating that this brother and sister duo were in cahoots to, you know, create this bondage photo business. Mm -hmm. But all right. Y'all do y'all, Claus. I just think yeah they
0: they were just just like Betty they were trying to figure out how to make money yeah. because it, I think it was Irving who figured out early on that people women specifically wanted to buy basically tabloid magazines pictures of movie stars because they would cut them out and it would early Pinterest boys and girls when you would actually cut out a picture from a magazine and tack it to your wall <laughs> um, but yeah he realized that there was money to be made from these pictures and that sort of
4: eventually parlayed into Well, then we'll just have them take their clothes off. Well, and then, for even more money, you can specialty order a bondage photo of your choosing. So, Betty, at this point, says in retrospect that she's feeling a little adrift and signs a contract with the clause. She said, you know, after all, I could make more money in a few hours modeling than I could earn in a week as a secretary. And she also claims, too, when it comes to the bondage photos that she's now very famous for... That uh, the setup was she had to take the bondage photos in order to take just the regular modeling photos. And she wanted to get paid for everything. So it was kind of like eating her vegetables. She was like, well, I guess I'll put on this ball gag <laughs> if I must. <laughs> but I mean, she thought the whole thing. Was ridiculous. There's this quote where uh, she says, the
0: other models and I enjoyed doing these crazy things. The craziest thing I was asked to do was pose as a pony
4: wearing a leather outfit with a lead and everything. We just died laughing. And uh, when it comes to the, you know, actually setting up those bondage images, because I mean, she she's in some uncomfortable looking positions in some of them, and one she is actually hog tied, and she emphasizes how it was Paula who always did the tying up and was really insistent that she was very gentle, so it never it never there was only one instance that she could think of where she was really physically uncomfortable because she had to hold this particular pose for a long time but the you know the things of tying people up and all of that really I don't know it just kind of rolled off her back seemed to um
0: well yeah so in addition to those bondage, picture, she was also making sexploitation films like Betty Page in High Heels and Teaserama. And she was in these five-minute, eight-millimeter, quote-unquote, films like Betty's Clown Dance and Dominant Betty Dances with Whip. I like how straightforward the titles are. And writing about these films, Richard Corliss, who's a, uh, a film critic over at Time, was talking about how, yeah, look... <laughs> These films were not great, Um, but when Betty shared the screen with these other women, because it was exclusively women, because if you featured men, then you faced... Uh, obscenity charges. Um, when she shared the screen with these other women, whether they were just helping each other get dressed or undressed, uh, or they were actually spanking each other or tying each other up, you could sometimes spot them giggling. And um, again, Margaret Talbot, who was writing over at New Republic, uh, said that these short films sometimes suggest a sort of lesbian theme park. So everybody agrees Even though these are just, like, cheesecake pictures, cheesecake movies, there's no, like, cultural, larger cultural value, perhaps? It's an interesting
4: snapshot into just, like, fun sexuality. Well, and also, in such stark contrast to hardcore porn today... Mm -hmm. But when we get to the mid 50s, this is really a turning point for Betty. She isn't quite mainstream, but she still sees some success. For instance, at one point, Howard Hughes apparently knew about her and asked her on a date via a messenger. And she was like, Mm, no, thanks. I'm dating somebody. Well, she had heard that he
0: if you wanted to be in a Howard Hughes movie, you had to sleep with him. Whether that was true or not, whatever. But she was like, I am not being put through that rigmarole of having a director
4: make me trade sexual favors for a part in a movie. Yeah, Betty was very vocal about her... At least her monogamy. She she had sex and she acknowledged that, but but she didn't sleep around, shall we say? Um, but in 1954, she starts working with now famous photographer and former pinup herself, Bunny Yeager, who takes Betty's most professional shots. And Yeager is really the one who helps Betty Bloom more artistically, you could say, into the icon you know today.
0: Yeah, and and Bunny herself had wanted to get behind the camera, uh, and her interest in shooting other young women really came about right as, conveniently, Hugh Hefner was launching Playboy magazine. And so Bunny combines all of these interests and these money-making schemes and shoots Betty for Playboy. And so in January 1955, Betty appears as the Miss January Playboy centerfold in a Santa cap... And a smile. Yeah. That's about it. Uh, but Bunny wasn't paid much. She only got a $100 for the picture. Uh, Hefner had purchased all of the previous
4: year's centerfolds just as a batch, including the, the very famous one of Marilyn Monroe. And later, talking about the appeal of Betty Page, Hugh Hefner said, quote, She's a combination of wholesome innocence and fetish-oriented poses that is at once retro and very modern. And... In that light, it almost makes sense that Bunny's style fell out of fashion as Playboy and other magazines started featuring more explicit content. And this is something, too, that Betty Page talks about, A, in taking pride in no other men being on the set aside from, say, like an Irving Claw, that she wasn't taking, you know, what would be considered those obscene photos with other men. And also, aside from one incident that she claimed happened against her will when she was drunk, which was a very rare occasion for her, she never um, did, I forget how she described it exactly, but um, she was talking about how, you know, a dirty photo was one in which you'd spread your legs. Mm -hmm. And... So that never happened. And even in those photos with Irving Claw, what we would be considered her most hardcore stuff, she was wearing, I mean, all sorts of layers of things. Like you would, you never actually saw her nipples, her vulva, certainly not pubic hair. Yeah, she talked about how sometimes she would have to layer the
0: underwear just so you wouldn't even see like a shadow or a suggestion Mm -hmm. of, of anything under it to keep it very, Very far from court, basically.
4: Well, and this, too, segues so perfectly from our conversation last time about the history of pinups and particularly the painted Mm pinups and how it was really the rise of Playboy and photographic technology and that new, more explicit style that rendered the old school pinup obsolete.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, Betty was certainly not obsolete yet because it was also in 1955 that Bunny shoots the famous Jungle Betty photos in Miami. And these are the ones that you've probably seen, the ones like Kristen referenced with the leopard print bikini uh, and Betty's posing with cheetahs at this, like, wild animal park in Florida, basically. And uh, she was very proud that she made that
4: bathing suit herself. Yeah, she made most of her bikinis and she lamented the fact that later in life she she threw everything away and was enraged that these Betty Page boutiques had popped up in the meantime, copping her styles.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so this is this is the height of her popularity, really, when she's appeared in Playboy and Bunny is shooting all of these fabulous and exotic photos. But it is also sort of another turning point for the worst for her, for her personal life.
1: Uh, and we will talk more about that in just a second. <music> Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
4: So it's 1955, and there's some congressional drama afoot because a senator named Estes Kefauver has his eye on a presidential race. And in order to drum up publicity for himself and really position himself as an important candidate, he decides to go on the war path against obscenity. So he puts together this Senate witch hunt, really, investigating pornography. And he calls Paige as a witness, citing some of her more explicit camera club photos. Because by this point, there are, what, like 20,000 of these photos out there. (laughs) Yeah, give or take. Give or take 20,000. But yeah,
0: sort of the context or what Uh, Kefauver framed as the context is that a teenage boy had died of autoerotic asphyxiation. And during the testimony, his father uh, on the stand agreed that the pose his son had been found in, he was all tied up, uh, looked just like a bondage photo of Betty's, which is such a dirty, it's just such a dirty trick. But, Betty never had to testify, possibly because she wasn't actually a mainstream bondage queen who could be made an example of. You know, she wasn't famous enough to sort of drag her through the mud. Instead, it was that entrepreneur, Irving Claw who had to defend his films and images. And he used the defense that, well, there was no nudity ever. There were no men in the photos. So it's not obscene.
4: Yeah, but it still ruined him. Mm-hmm. It ruined him, and it definitely drove Betty off the scene. Yeah, so she decides to take a new path. Uh, in 1957, at 34, she basically drops off the face of the pop cultural planet after all of the uh, obscenity drama and for a while, she dives headfirst into Christianity. She attends Bible college, um, and she gets involved with Billy Graham's crusade. And in the book, The Real Betty Page, The Truth About the Queen of Pinups by Richard Foster, a book which she says is mostly lies, Foster says that her classmates in Bible college remember her as erratic.
0: Yeah, basically that uh, her missionary zeal and her fervor for the Lord even freaked them out, essentially, that she was uh, going a little too far with it. Um, but yeah, during this time, I mean, she worked as a teacher. She said, you know, hey, that's what I was trained to do. I'll go back and do that. She married and divorced a few more times. Um, and things get really dark in the 1970s and 80s. She's living in Florida and California, and she runs afoul of the law Quite a bit. And this is coming from Foster's book. Uh, Betty gets in trouble. She's threatening and even assaulting friends and neighbors. She gets committed to a state hospital for a few months in Florida and then again in California after stabbing a landlady. And in 1982, She nearly kills her new landlady. She informs the woman that God has told her essentially to kill this woman. And as a result, she is committed to a state hospital for 10 years and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And it's interesting that during this time that she's committed and she's getting treatment and she's recovering from what she's been through, um, It's really during this time that her popularity, unbeknownst to her, and without her having to do a single thing about it, completely re-blossoms.
4: Yeah, I didn't know this bit at all. In 1980, Dave Stevens creates the graphic novel The Rocketeer, and it features... Betty as a character, or at least a lookalike, and he's talked about how uh, he discovered Betty Page photos when he was a young boy, and was immediately, in the same way that I was when I was a younger girl, was immediately struck yeah. by that imagery. Uh, sadly, I am a horrible drawer, so I certainly couldn't <laughs> recreate her image. Um, and then, though, in 1990, the movie version of the Rocketeer comes out with Jennifer Connelly playing the Betty character. And cult worship is born. And all this is coinciding with her being released from this mental hospital.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you come out of being out of society for 10 years and you come out and people are obsessed with you. When you had, even during the biggest success of your career, you had basically just been a playboy. Playmate, like that, that's sort of the height of her mainstream fame and all of a sudden you emerge to find that the entire world is, is sort of looking for you. I mean people were convinced that she was dead or that she had even become a nun, that she'd run afoul of the mob and they'd, you know, gotten rid of her. So all of these Betty theories were cropping up and it's so interesting to, to watch how people are drawn to her because we tend to uh, project a lot of things onto Betty, just the same way that we have tended to project a lot of things onto pinups in general, um, whether it's, you know, giving her credit for making people feel good about their bodies or just um, sort of kind of co-opting her as some sort of feminist icon almost.
4: And this public adoration has also been heavily monetized. As, so she died in 2008. And in 2013, for instance, she tied with Einstein at number eight on Forbes' list of the top-earning dead celebrities. I believe her estate was earning something around $8 million a year because of all of this new imagery and this new merchandise Mm -hmm. now associated with her estate. And writing about this, uh, Richard Corliss, whom we cited earlier, over at Time talks about how her star quality was undeniable, even in those silent films that she did. The, uh, what was it? Betty, Betty, uh, Betty's clown dance, Betty Page in high heels. And writing about this in Time magazine, he says, what everyone remembers about Betty, aside from her trademark bangs, is her smile. That guilelessness that she presented on camera. And
0: Corliss almost applauds the, the brand of sexuality that's present in Betty's images and her movies. He says to her fans and her official detractors who might have agreed that sex was dirty, Betty's giddy energy said, heck no, it's fun. And she is, she's laughing, she's having a good time, she herself is quoted as saying like, this is, this is so silly, this is so ridiculous that I'm getting paid to do this. Or, you know, is she, is that just what she's putting on? Regardless of whether it's true or whether she's just acting. It's still portraying a version of sexuality that is fun and, like you said, guileless.
4: And that's very much echoed in Margaret Talbot's assessment that she's the sex joke who's in on the joke, or at least it seems to be that way. Yeah, Talbot's essay is sort of
0: focused on this issue of fetishistic nostalgia uh, around Betty Page, basically that we, uh, us modern folks in the year 2015, like we said earlier, kind of cherry-pick things from the past and conveniently shake off the context and that our obsession with these things that were meant to be disposable 50 years ago ends up driving our so-called eBay economy. And she's wondering, like, okay, so what is it? Why why do we seem to love to pick things from the past that were meant to be basically like garbage? You know, pinups were meant to be advertisements. Betty Page was just meant to be in images sold to clients who wanted to see women with ball gags. And Talbot posits that Part of it is that Betty's pictures depict this joy with her work, this joy in herself, not a joy put on for the viewer. She's not necessarily looking straight at you trying to seduce you. She's almost too silly for that. And uh, Talbot writes that Betty's exuberant persistence of self shines through and that she's almost too sunny to be a seductress. Well, and there's
4: also, as she goes on to talk about, that 50s duality going on because you have Betty at least appearing to enjoy sexuality at a time when women weren't supposed to be, at least outwardly, sexual beings at all. Sexuality was literally under wraps. These magazines were under wraps. Um, I mean, she couldn't take a photo with a guy for fear of getting slapped with an obscenity charge. And this was happening, quote, at a time when fetishism and exhibitionism and ordinary sexual adventure really meant something. Yeah, and she goes on to quote Karen
0: Essex and James Swanson, who wrote a t- tribute book to Betty, essentially. Uh, and they say that she embodies the stereotypical wholesomeness of the fifties. 50- and the hidden sexuality straining beneath the surface. So really, I mean, she is just a concrete flesh and blood example of what we were talking about with our pinup models who may or may not have existed, but, but the women who were painted on paper. Betty is sort of the embodiment of that, the contradiction of the innocence and wholesomeness and joy and exuberance with that darker sexuality.
4: But the really fascinating thing, too, is how in her more modern day reclamation, and this was something talked about in a piece over at The Atlantic, it has been largely driven by women, whereas originally she was largely appreciated by, you know, straight men interested in the kinkier kinds of stuff or just, you know, who are picking up a playboy. It's there, there, There's really something that women today have been drawn to in terms of her sexuality, her body image, and also, you know, wanting to put a feminist spin on it as well. Yeah. Talking to The Atlantic, the uh, director
0: of Betty Page Reveals All, Mark Morey, talks about how... Her popularity today, her enduring popularity, probably says a lot about uh, the sexually repressive culture that we're still in and the fact that we're generally still uh, not cool with women's bodies, that women's bodies are always a thing. They're always politicized and discussed and stared at. And so the fact that women were the target audience for that documentary and that they respond so strongly to Betty, Maury was talking about how that really says a lot about the structure of
4: today's society and what it's telling women they have to be. So it has put her up as a role model for women to say, oh my god, here is a photo of this woman with, uh, you know, a, a not extremely thin, Looking body, she hasn't been photoshopped and she's looking directly into the camera. She is, there isn't another man in the frame. For all we know, she could just be doing this for herself Mm -hmm. and she is enjoying it and she is, seems to be fully embracing her body. There's this one nude photo of her where she's sitting on the bow of a ship and her head is upturned to the sun. And I mean, you wouldn't want to put any clothes on her. She looks so comfortable. (laughs) You know,
0: (laughs) yeah. And that's that's what people were driving home, Uh, especially Talbot, who says that regardless of what Betty was or wasn't wearing, she looked supremely at ease in that body because she was totally unlike both her contemporaries and our contemporaries. She wasn't as busty as Monroe or Mansfield, and she wasn't as thin as a Kate Moss or a Giselle. She'd even be been rejected by the Ford Modeling Agency for being too short and too hippie. And so here she is, really, like, there's so many pictures of her just laughing, whether she's in a bikini or whatever, naked, and it's that sense that she's embracing her own flaws, that she's made sex her ally, that really makes us want to identify with her.
4: Yeah, and, and, and as well too, her contradictions Probably help make her real because here's a woman who was taking nude photos on Saturday and going to church on Sunday because she didn't think the two were mutually exclusive. Even as she, after she'd gone through her really super duper religious phase, and I think she was still religious, you know, when she died, she always made very clear distinctions between, you know, what she did and sort of the intent of it. She didn't seem to harbor a lot of guilt. For posing because she wasn't actively having sex with a lot of people which she did wag a finger at
0: yeah and I mean so Paige is basically treated as this gateway drug almost to pin-up culture burlesque rockabilly and other cultures that are sort of generally curve positive, but despite all this, she she herself never considered herself an icon, and this was in one of the Q&As that Kristen and I read, and she says, I don't know what they mean by an icon. I never thought of myself as being that. It seems so strange to me. I was just modeling, thinking of as many different poses as possible. I made more money modeling than being a secretary. I had a lot of free time. You could go back to work after an absence of a few months. You couldn't do that as a secretary. And so she was... Because she couldn't be that actress, that famous actress she wanted to be, she took the route that was open to her. Yes, she was trained as a teacher. You could be a teacher. Yes, she was trained as a secretary. You could go do that too. But she, she needed to combine the, the lack of boring with the need to make money. Yeah.
4: I mean, she was kind of just doing it for herself. She couldn't rely on anybody else. Um, she was, she said in later in life that she was, really in love with the last guy that she married, but That was it. I mean, everybody else was, you know, kind of hurt her ultimately. And when she died in 2008, there were I mean, there was an outpouring of, you know, attention on her and all of these obituaries and reflective blog posts and things. And there were a lot of women and feminists who are hailing her, you know, hailing the event as the passing of a feminist icon, which is really interesting to just consider because on the one hand, the things that she stands for in terms of body positivity and embracing nudity and being really comfortable on your own skin and even just, you know, getting through the tough times and making ends meet when you need to. uh, Caroline and I, you know, we spent a lot of time actually before this podcast kind of puzzling over whether it's really all that accurate, though, to put that feminist label on her and whether it's even necessary. And I mean, I think talking about Betty Page
0: is an excellent counterpoint to Andrea Dworkin's stuff that we cited in our first episode on pinups, because she basically says that these images are awful and they're of no value and that they're just empty vessels for our fantasies. And when you talk about Betty, I mean, she's a real flesh and blood human who had an incredibly traumatic upbringing. She really struggled through hard times. And while she was beautiful and she did what she did to get herself by because, you know, she wasn't depending on some man to get her by. It doesn't necessarily mean that she was feminist. I think, you know, we tend to take or that she needs to be feminist I think that we take Betty's images uh, she a flesh and blood person and treat them and, and think about them the same way that we do the paintings of pinups you know from 1944 uh, and fill those images with our own projections and hopes and, and feelings and while I think it's wonderful to empower yourself however you do to feel good in your own skin and to look at someone like Betty and say see she wasn't a nine foot tall model you no she she looked way more normal and i can i can achieve that i do think that's wonderful but i do think that just because a woman does something or models something or or acts in a certain way it doesn't make it a feminist act and it doesn't make her
4: a feminist icon yeah and it it circles back to a question that you and i raised in our pre-podcast conversation of at what point when we are doing this are we putting words in other women's mouths, essentially, because she did speak extensively about her life before she died. And maybe she just was never directly asked about feminism, but it was certainly never a mantle that she put on herself. And I don't think that it, that in any way devalues her role. I think that mm-hmm. she's still easily considered a trailblazer and certainly an icon. Um, but I'm so curious to hear from listeners about this further compulsion that we might have to need to say she's a feminist icon yeah so we want to know about that and want to know if there are any betty page fans listening i have a feeling there are because when i asked on facebook should we do a betty page podcast the response was overwhelmingly yes so we want to know all of your betty page thoughts MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast, hashtag PinUpsWeek, or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob
4: And stepping away from pinups, we have a couple letters to share in response to our podcast on Women in Farming. Yeah, I have a letter here from Jenny who has
0: uh, a resource for, for ladies out there who are interested in farming. She says I recently spent the summer in Maine apprenticing on a small goat farm where we made goat cheese to sell at farmers markets. The farm was run by an older woman and all three apprentices that season were women, so we had a lot of fun together with the goats. I just imagine them, imagine them gossiping with the goats. Um anyway, <laughs> Jenny says the decision to become a farmer at almost 30 years old was kind of a sudden one, but I know that working with animals was something I really wanted to do. I'm just not very good at math, so being a vet or a vet tech was never in the cards for me or really anything I ever wanted to do. Farming ended up being the best decision for me, and I absolutely love it. If there are any aspiring lady farmers out there, I would really like to suggest the program which I used to get connected with my host farm. It was through the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. It's completely free. You just fill out an application, browse the list of farm descriptions. They have farms of every type all across Maine. And then you usually have to visit the farm to interview and come to an agreement with the farmer. A lot of the farms are run by women groups of women, or women along with their male partners. Maine is in the midst of a small farm revolution at the moment, so it's a really great place and program to get in there and experience farming hands-on. You usually don't need any experience, and most farms will offer free room and board. Some of the living situations can be a bit alternative, hence the visit before you accept. Food and sometimes a small stipend come along with it. All the information can be found at www.mofga.org. I highly recommend this program for anyone who wants to try farming but isn't quite sure about it yet. By the end of your apprenticeship, you will know if farming is right for you. Thanks for
4: the episode on Lady Farmers, and thank you, Jenny. Well, I've got a letter here from Juliana, and she writes... Howdy, Caroline and Kristen. I'm a longtime agriculture advocate and a longtime listener of SMINTY. So I was very excited to see you do a series on women in agriculture. I grew up in a rural area my whole life and was highly involved in the future farmers of America. She goes on to say, Overall, in my personal experience, I haven't seen any outright discrimination keeping girls from working family farms. They just usually desire a different position in the ag industry. Not only that, many farms aren't changing hands generation to generation anymore, but for more interested, non-related managers... Farmers aren't working hard to send their kids to college to get degrees, and those degrees aren't being applied back to the farm, so their parents need to find a way to keep it going without their children's support. I can't speak for all aspects and regions of agriculture, but I think that if a woman were to desire to run a farm business, she really would just need to apply herself. Agriculture is most certainly firmly rooted in traditional and conservative values, but I think you'd be surprised that it's also one of the most progressive. It's just that from an external view, you might not get that impression. As a woman in ag, I've had nothing but encouragement from the male and female bosses and mentors who have no problems with seeing women as equal contributors to ag. I think it stems from being a part of something bigger than yourself, that you are there literally to solve world problems like hunger and health, and having the opinion that girls belong there and boys there is a frivolous thought. The best person is put forth to solve those issues regardless of their gender. I think this was a great look at ag, but perhaps you could expand your definition of agriculture to include more facets where women are. Even with the traditional view of a farmer's wife, she isn't merely cleaning house. She's out there with her husband in the operation, working alongside him and their children. Also, she's more than likely making many financial and purchasing decisions for the operation, even if it's her husband's name on the deed. I have so much more to say about this subject, and there's so many topics to be discussed in ag. I blabber on, but I don't want to take up more of your time. Thanks for the podcast. And thanks for your insights, Juliana. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us, howstuffworks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with those links so that you can learn more about Betty Page. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here.